Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since he will either hate one and love the other, or will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food? and the body more than clothing. Consider the birds of the sky. They do not sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can you add one moment to your life by worrying? And why do you worry about clothing? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? Oh, you of little faith. So do not worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But... Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Disciples of Jesus, seek first the kingdom of Jesus, trusting that Jesus will provide for their needs. And yet, how often are we more characterized by worry and concern rather than a confident trust in God's provision? How often do we think about what we can do to remedy a situation right now, right away. And imagine all these various contingencies instead of going into the loving arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. Too often, I think, we are consumed with worries and lesser things rather than the one thing we ought to be concerned with. We are as Martha going to and fro, cleaning and cooking, rather than as Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, focused on that one necessary thing. That's why I think this passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 16, is so relevant for you and for me. Because in it, we have an example 
of Paul the Apostle living out God's purpose for his life. He's seeking first the kingdom of God. He's devoted to this one thing, to honoring the Lord Jesus. And he's trusting in God's provision every step of the way. In Acts 28, we see God's providence at work in Paul's life by way of his provision for Paul. What I hope to to show you from Acts chapter 28 is that God provides for Paul through the hospitality of strangers, by preserving his life, by giving him the power to heal, and then ultimately giving him encouragement from the church as he finally arrives in Rome. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together and encourage one another. Thank you for binding us together with this great responsibility of egging one another on towards good deeds and love, of reminding one another the deep, deep love of Jesus, of that blood that cleanses us from sin and all unrighteousness when we repent and trust in Christ. Lord, we thank you that sinners like us can know a great and wonderful Savior, the great and beautiful God who is. That we can know you by faith. Lord, we thank you that you have accomplished this for us. Pray that we would hear you speak in your word this morning, and that we would submit ourselves to it. That you would change us. Speak now, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So contextually, we know that Paul is traveling to Rome. The book of Acts begins with Jesus telling his disciples kind of how the book's going to play out. That the gospel is going to fill up Jerusalem. They're going to witness to it. It's going to go into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we've, we've summarized it by saying in Acts, Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, the church goes out, and God brings people in. And the vast majority of the book is focused on the word spreading. It's going to all different kind of people in different kinds of places. The word of God is growing. People are coming to believe in Jesus. And then in about chapter 21, Luke decides to focus specifically on the life and ministry of Paul. And so we've been following Paul through uh, imprisonments and beatings and, and all kinds of adversity as he has attempted to make his way to Rome. And we've seen him defend himself a number of times present the gospel a number of times, and still remain in chains. And so uh, a few weeks ago, he appealed to Caesar rather than allowing Festus to adjudicate his case. And he was told, to Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. And so in chapter 27, he gets on a boat with a bunch of other prisoners and a Roman centurion named Julius, and he begins to make his way towards Rome. He had had his heart set on going to Rome. The Lord had told him he would go to Rome to witness and testify about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so finally, he's on his way there after two years of being in the same place, in the same chains, day after day. And yet, we discovered it was not smooth sailing. A storm rose up and tossed 
Paul, along with all the occupants of the ship, about. In fact, they were tossed across the Mediterranean for 14 days. At one point, God sends an angel to Paul and said, don't be discouraged because you're going to make it to Rome. And all the others on the ship have been granted to you. No life will be lost. And so Paul encourages the rest of the crew, the sailors and the prisoners with him. He says, take heart. We're not going to die. But the ship is going to be run aground. It's going to be lost. And so we follow the shipwreck. And finally, they come to a place where they recognize there's, there's a beach. And they're going all in. They're going to make a run for it. And some of the Roman soldiers want to kill all the prisoners. And Julius, because he likes Paul, says, actually, we're not going to do that. We're going to come up with a different plan. And everybody, we read in verse 44 of chapter 27, makes it to shore safely. And that's where we are in chapter 20. That's where we pick up. Look with me at verse 1. Once safely ashore, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Malta, for those of you who love geography, is 60 miles south of Sicily. Italy is shaped like a boot, and Sicily is not really shaped like a ball, but you can pretend if you want. Uh, The boot is kind of kicking this island of Sicily, and then straight down 60 miles, you have the island of Malta. That's, that's where we are. The local people showed us extraordinary kindness. They lit a fire and took us all in since it was raining and cold. And so the people on this island, it says uh, local people or natives maybe you have. Uh, the word there in Greek is actually barbaroi. You can figure that one out. It's barbarians. These are barbarians, and a barbarian was somebody that was just a non-Greek or didn't speak Greek. All right, and so these barbarians on this island, these strangers that don't owe them anything, take them in and show them extraordinary kindness. And so you can picture it. There is Paul and Luke and Aristarchus and, and all these prisoners and Julius. I mean, there's 200 plus of these people, 276. And they are cold and wet. I mean, rain is cascading, cascading down their faces. Like that chill has set into their bones. They have nothing except for what they were able to salvage from a sunken ship. And here are these barbarians who greet them and take them in and welcome them around fire. I imagine that it wasn't just one giant bonfire, but there are many Many fires, and Luke is just focusing on the fire that he and Paul and others were around. It was incredible. I mean, you you can probably remember being really cold and and wet in your life. Maybe you played out in the rain as a kid or or in the snow. Maybe recall staying out until uh, your cheeks were rosy and red, and you, you had icicles starting to form in your eyebrows and your hair. And then you come into the house, and somebody hands you, that wonderful ceramic mug filled with hot cocoa. And you put your toes up next to a crackling fireplace. And feeling starts to return to them. I mean, how wonderful is that feeling? We can't imagine how wonderful this must have felt to be welcomed and taken in and set around a fire to warm themselves. This is incredible hospitality. 
from these barbarians. Indeed, Paul was shipwrecked. God was in control. And God has provided for Paul. He's provided for Paul through the hospitality of these strangers. Paul and company are going to stay with these people for three months and have their needs met. You can imagine Paul uh, sitting around a fire with Luke and Aristarchus and you know, maybe sipping on whatever beverage they gave him and, and kind of chuckling to himself. You know, I could be back in Jerusalem now. <laughs> Pharisee of Pharisees. But I wouldn't have it any other way. Following Jesus is worth it. Even though I've been beaten and stoned and now shipwrecked, he's always provided for me. And the joy I have in him, it can't be touched. It's, it's incredible. See him kind of noticing the fire as they sit there quietly. So You know what? I'm, I'm going to get some more brush, get some more fuel for the fire. That's what we pick up in verse 3. As Paul gathered a bundle of brushwood and put it on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the local people saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to one another, This man is no doubt a murderer. Even though he has escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. You'll notice justice is capitalized in your Bible, or at least it should be. Uh, they're referring to a specific deity. So justice is being personified here. Justice has not allowed him to live. But he shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no harm. They expected that he would begin to swell up or, or suddenly drop dead. And after they waited a long time and saw nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Public opinion is really fickle. I mean, can you imagine being Paul here? The Lord's provided for you. You've been around a warm fire. You're still, you know, not feeling great. And you go out to gather some brushwood, and it's apparently cold enough for a snake to be kind of torpid in there. And then when you put the, the wood on the fire, the snake is heated up and it jumps out and bites you. A poisonous snake. And I guess Paul at this point is just, you know, resigned. Like, really, Lord? Really? Shipwrecked a snake? And so he, he shakes the snake off kind of casually, I guess. Maybe not wasn't casually, I don't know. And, I, and it, he doesn't seem to have much of a reaction. Luke focuses on the reaction of the people, but I just have to, like, maybe he just thought, uh, we don't have anti-venom. If I'm going to die, I'm going to die. But the Lord said, I would get to Rome. And so I'm going to get to Rome. But the people, they go, he's gotten bit by a snake. That means he must be someone awful and deserve the judgment. Justice is coming to him. He, he escaped that shipwreck, but now he's going to die. And that's what they think until he doesn't die. And then they're like, he's not the worst person ever. He's a god. And this is it's a recurring problem in Paul's life. Now, I don't know... I've never personally had this problem. I don't suspect you've had it either, where people confuse you more than once in your life for being a God. 
They confuse Paul for a God. And what you'll notice here, and in through their, their time in Malta, Paul's going to go on, he's going to heal some people, but there's not any explicit gospel presentation recorded for us. You don't see Paul proclaiming the gospel here. You don't see uh, any record of conversions or of a church being planted. And so the question comes, why? And some people will come back to this, this word I pointed out to you in verse 2, that local people are barbarians, right? Well, they're barbarians, and so that means they don't speak Greek, and that means that Paul couldn't communicate with them, and so he couldn't share the gospel. I'm not a buyer on that particular theory. Uh, I think there's plenty of evidence in the text that shows that they communicate. After all, somebody has to tell them the island's called Malta. Luke's able to record direct speech from the islanders for us in verses 4 and 5. He's able to tell us what they're thinking. They seem to have relationships here. And so I, th- I think the preponderance of evidence suggests that they're able to communicate. And so you go, well, why no gospel presentation then? Why don't we have it recorded for us in the text? Here's my best suggestion. Uh, Luke has become very, very concerned with primarily highlighting for us Paul's journey to Rome. Since chapter 27, it's been all about Paul getting to Rome. And so that's where he kind of wants to put the spotlight. That God in his sovereign providence is getting Paul where he wants him to be and that he's giving Paul everything he needs to get there. That's the the big thing that's going on. Now comes the question. So did Paul share the gospel with these islanders, with these barbarians? We can't know for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I think he must have. And he must have because I think it's clear that they communicate. I think everywhere else Paul goes and acts, he shares the gospel with people. I think it would be negligence on Paul's part if a people said he was a god to then go about doing miracles, further reinforcing that mischaracterization of him. Furthermore, he tells us in Romans 1, verses 13 through 16, a letter that he wrote three years prior to this. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now, in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, or non-Greeks, both to wise and foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so Paul is saying, I'm obligated to preach the gospel to Greek and to non-Greek, to wise and to foolish. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. I'm obligated to preach the gospel so that men and women might repent of their sins, put their faith in Jesus Christ, and be saved from their sins. And I don't think this obligation or this burden was immediately erased when he was in Malta. It's my contention that he corrected this belief of theirs that he was a god. Remember back in Acts 14 when he was first mistaken for a god. This is how he corrected those people in Lystra. He said, people, why are you doing these things? We're men also, just like you. And we are proclaiming good news to you. That you turn from these worthless things 
through the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to go their own way, although he did not leave himself without a witness, since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. And so we can, we can see Paul saying, you've got it all wrong. You're actually closer when you thought of me as a murderer. In fact, I facilitated the stoning of an innocent man. I stood by and held coats. And yet, the God who is, the God who has given you food and water and shelter, has brought me here. Instead of killing me like I deserved, instead of sentencing me to hell and an eternity apart from him, He interrupted my life and saved me. He saved me and he could do the same for you. And you are are very kind. You are extraordinarily kind. But you are still in rebellion against the holy God who made you. Because you have not worshipped him as you ought. Friends, your kindness will not buy you salvation. No, only the blood of Christ can do that. You see, the God who has made everything has taken on flesh. And he died in your place for your sins on the cross. And after three days, he was raised again. Put your faith in him. I don't know that that's exactly how Paul would have presented the gospel. I am quite confident that he did. Is it possible he didn't share the gospel in Malta? Yes. Is it probable? I don't think so. God provides what Paul needs. He provides through the hospitality of these strangers. He provides for him by preserving his health. But he doesn't just preserve Paul's health or allow a snake to bite Paul so that Paul can bring glory to himself as he continues to heal people. Now, the snake bites Paul's hand, and then Paul doesn't die, to demonstrate that Paul is a righteous man, that he's trustworthy, incredible. And then he can turn to these Maltese people, islanders, and say, believe in my God, not that I am a God. Believe that God had provided for Paul an opportunity he did not foresee to share the gospel with lost men and women on the island of Malta. God was getting Paul right where he wanted him. And at this moment in time, it wasn't in Rome, not yet. He put him on Malta first. Friends, sometimes it will feel as if we need to get somewhere. And God will put us elsewhere first. And he's done so for a reason. I want you to know that right now, wherever you are in your life, you are there for a purpose. I want you to know that God will provide for you while you're there in that season, in that place. And he has likely and will likely provide you with opportunities to share the gospel in that place, in that season of life. 
The people that are in your life, the relationships you have, are not by accident or happenstance. They are there by divine design. Christian, you have a message that brings dead people to life. And you are to share that message with those who are around you. Let us resolve to take advantage of the opportunities that God provides for us to share the gospel. Think about it later this afternoon. Who can I invite to come to church with me? Who can I tell about Jesus? Who can I ask if they're willing to read through one of the gospels with me so that we might talk about Jesus? Look for ways to engage others with the word of Christ crucified for sins and raised for justification. Paul has been provided with hospitality from these strangers. His health has been preserved. And now we'll see God provides him with the ability to heal. We've seen him heal before, and now he's going to do it again in Malta. Look at verse 7. Now in the area around that place was an estate belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us hospitably for three days. Publius' father was in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went to him, and praying and laying his hands on him, he healed him. After this, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. And so they heaped many honors on us. And when we sailed, they gave us what we needed. And so we see Paul, he goes to Publius's house. His father is ill. He discovers it. He goes and heals his father. Word gets out. All these islanders are coming to Paul. And he continues healing them and making them well. Once more, I don't think to his own glory, right? In Acts, we've seen the miracles always serve the message rather than the messenger. And so I think that he's proclaiming the gospel along the way here. He's doing these miracles, but you'll see that his action of performing miracles results in something in verse 10. They heap up many honors on us. And when we sailed, they gave us what we needed. God provides for the last leg of their trip through the hospitality of these barbarians. They just show up shipwrecked, are welcomed in, and then are sent off. God is providing what Paul and his friends need. And he continues to provide. Look at verse 11. After three months, we set sail in an Alexandrian ship that had wintered at the island. So the presence of an Alexandrian ship there is more um, Evidence that they probably spoke the same language. It wintered there with twin gods as its figurehead. That's an odd detail. The twin gods is probably just a carving for good luck. Uh, the twin gods there are Pollux and Castor. They are sons of Zeus and Lydia. So you know that now. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, after making a circuit along the coast, we reached Regium. After one day, a south wind sprang up, 
And the second day we came to Petoli. There we found brothers and sisters and were invited to stay a week with them. And so we came to Rome. Now the brothers and sisters from there had heard the news about us and had come to meet us as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And so finally, Paul arrives in Rome. Rome at last! And who is there to greet him? But brothers and sisters in Christ. Brothers and sisters that, that meet him in uh, Patoli, ask him to stay a week. And I guess Julius agrees to this because he stays a week. And then as they make that final trek to Rome, they're not, they're not all the way there yet. They're still making this final leg on foot. Brothers and sisters are coming from all over to greet Paul and to encourage him and to, to see him. And he thanks God and takes courage. I just feel like this has got to be extreme understatement. He's been trying to get to Rome for years. What would it have been like to, to be walking towards the city and at these stop points, having Christians that you've never met before come up and say, Brother Paul, we've been waiting for you. We're so glad you're here. I mean, it must have been this relief. Yes, God has done this. He's gotten me where he said he would. He's provided. And he says, thank you, Lord. And then he takes courage to do what's next, to continue pressing on in faithfulness. Thank you for what you've done, God. Thank you for all the suffering that you've brought me through. Thank you, you were right. And I trust you to continue to provide for me with each day. With each step that comes, I know you're going to bring me exactly what I need. I'm going to give you thanks and praise, and I am going to live with the heart of a lion. Paul is encouraged. God has provided for Paul encouragement over and over again. Have you noticed that? Over and over again, the church has been encouraged by Paul, and Paul has been encouraged by the church. And this is basic work of being part of the people of God. It's to encourage one another. It's one of the reasons that we gather. Right? Hebrews 10, 23-25. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, because he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. One of the reasons you gather here each Lord's Day is to encourage one another and provoke one another towards good deeds and love. It's to help one another worship and follow King Jesus. We need encouragement. To be a human being is to need encouragement. The Apostle Paul needed to be encouraged. And God sent him the encouragement he needed through brothers and sisters all over the place. Friends, he's sent you encouragers and encouragement here at this hour. And he's going to send them again next week at the same time so that we might encourage one another on towards 
Christ-likeness so that we might help one another hold on to our confession of hope without wavering. Encourage one another. We can't look at God's provision in Paul's life and not think of all the ways he's provided for us. You think of how God has met your daily needs. How he has provided you with all that you need without failure. You can probably th- think of some seminal moments in your life too where you thought, I don't know how I'm going to pay this bill. I need this particular job. I don't know how I'm going to solve this particular relational conflict. And then God did something. And all of us have, have those moments. I, I have a bunch of them. I thought of a bunch of them this week and was writing them down in a notebook and I went, how foolish of me to forget these things. How foolish of me to not remember God's past faithfulness. His past faithfulness to me and to his people is a great reminder that he's going to keep being faithful in the future. That he is in control and that he provides for his people. He's provided for you. He's not going to stop. He provided for the Apostle Paul and he's providing for you. But he's provided beyond our daily needs. Yeah, I, I think it would be a great idea this week to give God thanks for the, the jam that you spread on your toast in the morning and the warm feel of a ceramic mug in your hand and the singing of birds outside your window and the rising of the sun and rain if it comes. Yes, give him glory. These are all gifts. He's provided for us. And I want to encourage you to, to share. Share those stories. Share the stories of God's provision in your life with, with someone today. Share it with some, Have lunch with somebody this week and just say, let's talk about how God's provided for us in our lives. But all these provisions in our lives, these daily provisions, pale in comparison to how God has provided for our deepest need. God's provision for our salvation, it's like, it's like all these other daily provisions are stars in the sky at night. But his provision for us in Jesus Christ, for our sin, it's like when the sun comes up in the morning and the light of the sun overwhelms all the brightness of the stars because it's just so much more glorious. You see, God has provided not only our daily needs, but for our deep need of reconciliation with him. All of us, apart from Christ, have a debt of sin that we cannot pay. And we couldn't repay it throughout an entire eternity. There's no way for us to pay this debt. And God, he's rich in mercy and a big spender. He says, I'll pay that. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive, alive with him, and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. 
Friends, the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ are a giant receipt stamped across history that says of your sin paid in full. This should lead us to give thanks to God. It should lead us to rejoicing. It should lead us to living courageously. The God who has loved us and given himself for us is going to take care of us. He's going to provide. That's the argument of Matthew 6.30. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow and is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God has already given us his best gift. How much more will he give us lesser gifts? God has already slayed the dragon that stood against you. What makes you think he's not going to deal with the flies and the gnats in your life? If there are flies and gnats in your life, it's because he wants them there. Trust him. Give thanks. Take courage. He will provide you with exactly what you need each and every day until the day you die. And then he will keep providing. He will provide you fullness of joy at his right hand where there are pleasures forevermore as you await the final resurrection. At the final resurrection, he will provide you with a new body that doesn't get sick or die or age. Then he's going to provide you with a new heavens and a new earth and new adventures. He's going to provide you with everything you have ever wanted or could ever need for all of eternity. Our God is a provider. And he's purchased all of those things by the blood of Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. If you are a non-Christian here, you can have that salvation. If you will turn from your sin and take hold of the Savior, if you will come to him and say, Jesus, I have nothing to offer, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Forgive me. If you turn from your sin and put your faith in King Jesus, he will save you. Believer, be encouraged. Give thanks to God for saving you. And take courage. Because no matter what tomorrow brings, God is in control. And he will provide you with what you need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. For in it, you have provided for us all we need to be wise unto salvation and to live godly lives. We thank you that in your word, you reveal yourself to us. We thank you that in your word, you have revealed to us our Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life in our place, died a substitutionary death in our place, and rose from the dead so that we might have a place in your family, both now and forevermore. We give you glory and honor and praise for this. God, we give thanks and we take courage. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.